Our reading today is from Mark 15, 1 through 39. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a confrontation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many changes they bring, how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate, Do as you usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, Released for them, Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple cloak and twisting, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, passerby Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked to him to one another and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also revealed him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, and in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. It's the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. Shocking. The words that we just read happened. The words that we just read is the end of the passion. It's the culmination of this one that we have learned as the Messiah, as the Lord, as the Savior, as the Son of God. And then we read, He is crucified. I can already tell you that uh, I will not be able to do justice to this uh, account. There is more here, there is more to wrestle with than can fit into any sermon. But I do think that today we can grasp the fundamentals of the cross. We can grasp why the cross, as horrifying and horrible as it is, is good news. And I want to start by asking you, have you ever thought about Barabbas? The person that we meet in verses 6 to 15, he, he shows up next to Jesus. We meet him only on Friday morning, the day of the crucifixion. But think about Barabbas. Friday morning, he wakes up. He's a prisoner. He is convicted of murder and insurrection. His sentence is death. He wakes up on Friday morning knowing that today is the day I die. But then Saturday morning comes, and he wakes up a free man. How did that happen? How did he go from death row to set free? That's an amazing story. That would be the, a, a story if I were Barabbas, I would be telling again and again and again. I want to tell you, I was hours from death, but then I was set free. Now, if you were Barabbas and that was your story, would you be grateful? Or would you tell the story as, let me tell you about the awesome luck that happened to me? Would it be a story of extreme gratefulness or would it be a story of just great luck? It really depends on how you view the cross. If Barabbas was there Friday morning grieved and overwhelmed with his guilt as a murderer, then he probably responded with gratefulness. But maybe Barabbas was there, as many prisoners are, Defiant, angry, resistant at the charges, responding to to the, the conviction and the murder sentence with, I don't deserve this. Life's unfair. Perhaps he was going Friday morning with a, a fixed jaw. One is dealing with the question of, how do I possibly get delivered from my guilt? And the other is responding to their guilt with excuses and self-justification and a desire to fight back. 
depends on how Barabbas is thinking on Friday morning, how he views that story. You see, if, if he's just a fixed jaw person, if he sees life as unfair, then he's going to respond with a story that I had a great bit of luck. But if he recognizes that he was guilty, then he comes away Saturday morning with inexpressible gratitude. I think both of those options are in this room. We either have the uh, situation where we are just overwhelmed with guilt and shame, that we are just paralyzed with what we have done wrong, and we, we don't know whether we can be delivered, whether we can be saved. If, if I knew what happened in your life or what you have done, you know you'd be unwelcome. You'd be judged. Others of us are no less guilty, but we have decided to fight that feeling of guilt and shame with fists, with a stiff jaw, with excuses, with, well, if it was like this for me and not like that, then I would be different. And we fight the sentence of our guilt with it's unfair. I don't deserve this. So which of these two are you? Which of these two responses will experience the cross as good news? Today I want to offer anyone who is standing over here facing their guilt and their shame with defiance and anger and self-justification with the offer, take down the shields. Look at the cross from a new perspective. And if you're over here, gripped with guilt and shame, feeling unworthy, then I want you to go and look at the cross. Because at the cross, you will find release and freedom from guilt and shame, no matter how severe and unforgivable you may think it is. And that is where we need to come when we look at the cross. We look at the cross today. We come to the cross in Barabbas' shoes today. And we are going to look to see its power to set us free, to see how it is good news. I want to do that under two very main headings. First, looking at what Jesus bore on the cross to save us. And then, seeing how we have good news in light of that. Let us now look at Jesus bore on the cross to save us. We are going to see three griefs that he bore in our place. And these we have to look at and we have to consider, and I will, I will say in advance, we are going to take an unflinching look because I think we need to understand what the crucifixion was. The first grief that we see Jesus bearing to save us is unimaginable pain. Unimaginable pain. When we see in verse 25 those three words, they crucified him. We are seeing in an incredible uh, condensing of language the most horrible thing that could ever be imagined. Crucifixion was something that polite society didn't talk about. It was, 
It was not discussed because it was so horrifying. Josephus, a contemporary historian, describes crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths in a society that was practiced in all sorts of exterminations. This one is the most, uh, the most wretched of deaths. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. The, the C-R-U-C in the middle is, is, is the Latin word for cross. And so when we, the, the, the crucifixion required a new word to describe the extreme pain and anguish that alone belonged to it. A new word, excruciating, was created. It is literally death by torture. And we read of Jesus being scourged, just whipped to to an inch of his life. In verse 15, we we see him uh, put upon the cross in verse 25, and the, the language is brief. But what is happening in crucifixion? We know about the nails, we know about the wounds. But when we talk about crucifixion, we are talking about death by suffocation. That, that's how the cross kills. It's not the, not the wounds and the injuries, it's by suffocation. This is described by Fleming Rutledge. She describes it this way, exhalation becomes impossible for a person hanging from a cross. The weight of the body hanging by its wrists would depress the muscles required for breathing out. The only way to gain a breath at all would be by pushing oneself up from the legs and feet or pulling oneself up by the arms, either of which would cause intense agony. A crucified person gasping and heaving on his cross is forced to be his own executioner. He dies truly and completely alone with the weight of his own body killing him as it hangs, causing his own diaphragm to suffocate him. This is the most wretched of deaths. And so we can think back to these words from Psalm 22. When Jesus said his last words, he quoted Psalm 22, 1, but no doubt... The rest of the psalm speaks of him as well. Psalm 22, 14 says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, st- my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus bore unimaginable pain. In knowing that, we know this. Jesus is the greatest victim of the fall. The fall from the Garden of Eden where everything was good and pristine and beautiful and God was with man. And all of that was lost when the one commandment given to man was violated, taking the fruit and eating it. 
And from that, the curse upon the land, the curse upon relationships, the curse upon life itself fell and grew and expanded through all of creation. The cross is is the epitome, the apex of the depravity of man. Finding a way to kill someone by torture. And that is where Jesus finds himself. Jesus is the greatest victim of the fall. And I think it is worth remembering that when we face one of the, the tougher questions in society, and that is the problem of suffering. Why suffering? Why, why do we have to see suffering? Suffering is, is such a fundamental injustice. We see suffering upon people who, who don't deserve it. We see starvation. We see the ravages of sickness. We see all sorts of suffering in this world. And our, our heart and our mind recoils at that. We, we, we recognize that this is not right, but it is everywhere. And we've all experienced it personally. When we recognize in the cross that Jesus bore unimaginable pain, that he was the greatest victim of the fall, we have one answer to the problem of suffering. And that is first this. God has shared in it. God has shared in the worst of suffering. And in sharing in the worst of suffering, he has provided the only solution for it. Because as we will see, because God in Christ suffered unimaginable pain, he has purchased for us death without a sting and life everlasting. When we recognize that God's Son endured unimaginable pain, I believe it calls us powerfully to trusting in the gospel, to trusting in the God who gives us this gospel because, as, as my, one of my favorite theologians, D.A. Carson, says, you can trust a God who bleeds for you. Remember last week how we talked in the prayer of Gethsemane how this was a choice. This was something that the Father and the Son came to agreement upon and chose to do to save sinners. Jesus is on this cross because of his love of saving sinners. He endured unimaginable pain because to save you, he could not save himself. And so if he has gone to that length, if he has endured that kind of pain, then certainly you can trust a God who bleeds for you. He will do whatever it takes to deliver you. Second, the second grief that he bore, he bore maximum shame. In verse 22, we are told that they crucified him and placed him in the place called Golgotha which we'll talk about in just a moment. But first, let us understand the context of of what Jesus is going through as we look back at Isaiah 53, verse 3, uh, the chapter that describes the the, the suffering servant of God who Jesus fulfills in, in great detail. We are told that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, 
He was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, in Isaiah 53, we are told that the suffering servant will endure maximum shame. He will be despised by his own people. He will be awful to look upon. He was going to experience extreme shame. Look at verse 22 in this passage. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Why is that so important? Because Golgotha was a public place. Golgotha was a place that was put upon a busy road where people would walk by and see. Jesus was not crucified or was not put to death in a quiet, hidden place where he could retain his dignity. The whole purpose of crucifixion is to humiliate. In a fascinating, detailed, monumental work on ancient crucifixion, Martin Hingle writes of the practice, By the public display of a naked victim at a prominent place, crucifixion also represented his uttermost humiliation. Jesus in the cross is put on display publicly. He's put on display without clothes. He's put on display to be mocked, to be judged, to be reviled, to throw stuff at. When we think about this, let these words from Romans 15.3 be meditated upon. Romans 15.3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus, the, the Son of God, the one whom the Father is most beloved, we are told he bore reproaches, he bore insults that fall upon us, they have fallen upon him. In that sense, because Jesus went through the cross and dealt and endured maximum shame, he is, as we are told, a sympathetic high priest. He knows the sting and the wound and the injury of a wrong word said to you. He knows how false it is to say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. He has heard them. He has endured them. And so when you come to him beaten up, and bruised and grieved at the rejections and the desertions and the betrayals. He is sympathetic because the reproaches of those who reproached you have also fell on him, and he bore those in the cross. The cross was the end. I mean, that, that, that's, that's fundamentally what the cross was all about. It was the end. Jesus came to Jerusalem as the Messiah, as the Christ. They cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, because finally the Deliverer was here. And Rome, by the cross, said, that is not the truth. You are not the Messiah. You are not the Deliverer. You are not the Savior. You are the one who will be smashed by the cross. The cross is the end. Look at verse 31. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You see, upon the cross, all of the claims of Jesus are demonstrated, are demonstrably false. Jesus is portrayed at Golgotha as a failure, as not the Messiah, because the Messiah delivers people, saves people. But what they see on the cross is the Savior being destroyed. And that looks like the end. When they call him the King of the Jews, they are making Jesus a joke. They are making Jesus a byword. In the cross, what is declared most loudly is Jesus is, or is Caesar is Lord. Because Caesar has the power of the cross. This pretender who wants to call himself Lord, well, where is he? He's on my cross. The cross says Caesar is Lord. And so the last word of the cross for anyone who who has put upon it is failure. You're a joke and you die with no honor at all. And that is why these words from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 should shock us and should reveal to us the incredible truth of our gospel. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that Christ died for sins. Those four words are impossible without a resurrection. Nobody that is crucified is ever honored and called Christ. No one who is crucified is ever called a sacrifice for sins. The only way that anyone who is crucified could be called the Christ and the sacrifice of sins is if he rose again. If instead of the last word being Caesar is Lord because I am the crucifier, instead there is an empty tomb where the crucified one stands again as Lord over all. The most powerful evidence of the resurrection, I think, is the fact that his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, is absolutely without doubt. We know he was crucified, and that is the killer of all possibility that he was the Christ, except that something had to have happened that would have made the last word of crucifixion not the last word. And the only thing large enough for that is a resurrection. Amen? Third, he bore the grief of our guilt. Look now at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The darkness reveals something even more shocking than just the human acts of crucifixion. It reveals that in the act of the crucifixion, not only was he being rejected by men, but God's judgment and wrath were also being visited upon him. Darkness is a telltale sign of God's judgment. You can read in the story of the Exodus that darkness was one of the, uh, the signs that God brought upon uh, the Egyptians. 
But in Amos 8, 9, we are told this. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all of your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And darkness is a, is a sign of God's judgment upon his son. What we recognize in this is that the cross was not just an awful death. It was a cursed death. It is not an accident that Jesus was put on a cross or as would be said in the first century, hung upon a tree. That it was that particular death and not some other death of which were in option, we had options, that it was that particular death signifies how he was dying. Because when you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, you read this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You'll go through the book of Acts and you'll see again and again that Jesus is described as being hung upon a tree. That was a, 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 a reasonable way of describing crucifixion. In Deuteronomy, we are told that the death that has the person hung upon a tree is the one who is cursed by God. And that is the death that Jesus bore. Jesus bore a cursed death. Jesus died under the curse of God. Paul makes this explicit in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It is that experience of being the cursed one and not the chosen and beloved one on the cross that is behind Jesus' words of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the cross, Jesus was bearing our guilt. Why did Jesus become cursed? Why did Jesus become cursed? Again, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus became cursed because he was bearing the penalty of our sins. So when you look at the cross, that is the measure of your sin. That is the measure of my sin. The cross is the only accurate measure of our sin. It's not your neighbor, it's not your coworker. It's not the person that you look to to say, well, I'm not nearly that bad. The cross is the measure of the sinfulness of sin. Because in the cross, God's wrath is poured out fully and demonstrably 
upon sin. So as we are Christians, as we confess Christ, let us not minimize sin. Because the good news is only as big as we understand sin to be. Let us never try and reverse what God's word says about what is sin. Instead, let us say, yes, that is a sin. I'm a sinner. We're all in sin. But the answer is not to redefine sin, but to go to the cross and hold on to it because sin, your sin and my sin, has been paid for there. Come to the cross is our message. That is what's behind the centurion's confession. When the centurion looks at Jesus and says, uh, regarding the way that he died, certainly this man was the son of God, he is confessing with a guilty conscience, I am the crucifier of righteous blood. Righteous blood has died, and I am guilty. And if we recognize that the gospel is the son of God upon the cross, and that that was done for sins, then there is no way to look at the cross but to recognize, I am guilty. Righteous blood was shed for me. But at the same time we come to the recognition of our guilt, we also come to this beautiful truth. In Jesus' death, our ransom has been paid. The ransom has been paid here for our guilt. And that is why we look at this terrifying event and we call it good news. We call it good news for two reasons. First, in Jesus' crucifixion, sinners are set free. Let's go back and talk about Barabbas. Barabbas has been convicted of murder and insurrection. Barabbas wakes up Friday morning. His judgment is about to be fulfilled. And what was his sentence? Look down at verse 27. Look down at verse 27. And with him, Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. It is likely that those two robbers that were crucified... Barabbas was the third. That the three of them were arrested together, were charged together, and were all scheduled to be put on crosses together for their insurrection. Barabbas had a cross that he was waking up to that day. That was the death for insurrectionists. And yet, look at verse 15. He is headed to the cross But Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus literally is taking Barabbas' place. Barabbas is going free because Jesus is going to the cross. And the cross that Jesus will be put upon was the cross that was designated for Barabbas. He took Barabbas' cross. And then what happens to Barabbas in the same moment? He goes free. 
He goes free inexplicably. He is released. It's not because he's not guilty. He's guilty. He's the one that deserves the cross. But because Jesus was put on his cross, he goes free. This is a picture of the gospel. Barabbas was saved by a substitute. One who was punished in his place. One who suffered in his place. This is the great exchange of the gospel. Jesus takes the sting of death and we get life. He takes our shame and we receive honor. He takes our guilt and we are set free. As we are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Do you see Him who knew no sin became the one upon the cross so that the one who deserved the cross goes free. That is our story. We are guilty. Our shame and guilt that we bear is well-deserved and earned. And yet we are told that the one who has no shame and no guilt bore our shame and bore our guilt that we might go free. Now, Barabbas was not a small-scale sinner. He wasn't a small-scale crook. He was a murderer. He was treasonous. He was a rebel of the worst kind. And in the cross, Jesus took his place. God's son died in the place of the worst of sinners, even murderers. He dies in the place of a murderer to demonstrate visibly whatever you have done, whatever wakes up your conscience in the middle of the night, whatever screams at you, unforgivable. Jesus died in the place of that. There is no sin he cannot forgive. His own words, Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Why can he say that? Because he paid for them upon the cross. Did Barabbas recognize all of this? I don't know. But Barabbas wakes up Saturday morning with his sentence taken away. He has another day to live. Did he respond to that with hardness of heart and say it must have just been luck? Or did he recognize By God's grace and kindness and mercy, I have been set free. My friends, you don't have the ignorance that Barabbas could perhaps claim. The cross has been suffered. The guilt and the shame has been paid. We do not put on a stiff neck. We repent. I ask you, accept that Jesus died for your guilt and be set free. But more than sinners being set free is this beautiful truth. Sinners are brought near. In verse 38, we are told at Jesus' death that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The tearing of the temple curtain lets us know 
that Jesus' death on the cross was not simply a pardon. It was not simply a, your sins have been paid, now go and do a good job. It was not simply a second chance that Christ purchased. What Christ purchased in his death is total reconciliation. Total reconciliation. You see the the curtain in the temple represented and, 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 and stood for hundreds of years to communicate to the Jewish people that God and his holiness and man and his sinfulness are permanently separated. They cannot be brought together. If God's holiness comes into contact with sinful people, it is instant death. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, the the, the description of the Day of Atonement, we are told even the high priest, the most righteous and visibly sinless person in the culture, if he goes into the most holy place, his sentence is death. But Jesus' death has rendered into the veil because he is saying that Christ has accomplished everything once and for all, that in him we might be in the presence of God's holiness and live, not only live, but discover the joy that our hearts were made for. We read earlier Hebrews 19, 10, uh, 10, 19 through 22. I'll read again. Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We have been brought near. We have been brought into the holy realm of God. I want to tell you something else about Barabbas. Barabbas is an interesting name. We've met a person previously in the the Gospel of Mark uh, called Bartimaeus. And Mark translates that for you. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. That word bar just simply means son of. All we know is Barabbas' last name. Now take bar off. What word do you have left? Abba. Abba. Literally, if you were to break apart Barabbas' name, it's son of Abba. That's the true gift that is offered in the gospel. Barabbas is a sinner, a rebel, separated from God, deserving of judgment, deserving of the cross, deserving of utmost pain, shame, and guilt. And yet, in the gospel, in the tearing of the curtain, the true meaning of his name is offered to him. The one who died for you does not only set you free from your guilt, the one who died for you allows you to be the son of Abba, the heavenly father. The torn curtain is our heavenly father calling out to every prodigal, every Barabbas, come home. Come to Jesus and no matter what you have done, you will not be put to grief. 
You will not be put to shame. You will be welcomed with great joy. How do you respond to the cross? Let it be your salvation. Come to Jesus. There is nothing that separates you. Amen.